and I think we'll see even more joining, but I'd like to welcome you all to this um, session, the Plug Cornet New York City Chapter Plugged In event. I'm Kelly Douglas with Holoform, and I'd like to thank in particular Liz Archer for her consistent contributions to our content. Thank you, Liz, keep it coming. And, uh, and also um, let anyone on the call, please, if you have ideas, things you'd like us to discuss for future content, either for coffee chats, for um, upcoming happy hours or more plugged in events, please reach out to anyone on the Cornet uh, call and we'll get, we'll get in touch with you. But please for this, our purposes today, um, mute your cameras and your uh, microphones so that we can let the panel get started. And Anthony will introduce. Uh, thank you very much again for joining. Thank you very much. First, I wanna welcome everybody. Thank you for joining us. I'm Anthony Kolchagi, Managing Principal with FCA. I'll be moderating our panel discussion today, which centers around the new Eisner Amper headquarters located in Midtown along the Third Avenue corridor, just steps from Grand Central. The facility includes 125,000 rentable square feet of workplace, including a 3,200 square foot exterior terrace and a street level private entrance lobby, a project which kicked off in 2018 pre-COVID. However, the majority of the construction ended up being during the pandemic, which our panel will discuss today. Joining me today is the tenant, Eisner Amper, as well as our prime design and delivery partners, BVA, the owner's representative, JT Megan, the construction manager, and my firm, FCA, the architect for which I was principal in charge. With me today is Rob Levine. Rob is a partner and chief operating officer of Eisner Amper. He oversees firm operations, including IT, finance, workplace strategies, facilities, change management activities for over 2,000 employees. Rob's career spans over 30 years in the industry, the majority with Eisner Amper. Also joining us is Lauren Antonelli, a senior associate and project manager at VBA. Lauren has over 35 years of experience in design, construction, and project management. Her broad depth of knowledge covers the legal, financial, professional services, and media and entertainment sectors. Lauren has also served as the PM for prior projects with Eisner Amper. Next, we have Jay Ramatsky. Jay is a project executive with JT Megan & Company. Jay leverages his architectural background and education, along with over 25 years of experience in the New York City construction market, where he drives successful outcomes for many of the city's most recognizable clients. As project executive, Jay's role is multifaceted, overseeing his team's day-to-day -day operations and his clients' goals. And last but not least, my partner and design principal of FCA's New York City office, Mark Harbeck who has an impressive portfolio that ranges from a thousand square foot design lab for Macy's to 350,000 square foot headquarters for AmeriHealth. Mark brings a vibrant depth of perspective as well as a social and environmental sensibility to all his work. Mark was named Contract Magazine's Designer of the Year in 2006. His boundless curiosity is what pushes him to create uniquely individual design solutions for his clients. Before we begin, I'd like to share a couple of images of the recently completed project. Mark, go ahead, take it away. Hi everybody, thanks Tony. Um, Liz, can you share? Um, while, while we're starting, uh, the, the project was de developed around four pillars established early on by our client. Those pillars being flexibility, collaboration, wellness, taking care of the people, sustain and sustainability, taking care of the planet. And I'll let Rob talk about this a little bit later on in detail. Through these filters, we designed and built a transformational work environment, moving Eisner from a traditional static and hierarchical environment into a 100% unassigned and mobile work environment. Choice was a driver. Used to establish the day in the life of the employee and the visitor, work from anywhere was our goal. Through the, excuse me, through the use of a robust mobile reservations app, employees reserve a workplace for the day or the week and then have the ability to move amongst literally hundreds of other non-reservable seats in lounges, huddle rooms, phone booths, study pods, conference rooms, et cetera. In this image of the main employee and visitor's lobby or arrival lobby located on the main amenity floor, the messaging in the lobby tells the story of Eisner Amper's global presence. The ethereal space is meant to focus one's attention on this story 
broadcast in a constantly updating loop on a digital media wall. From here, the visitors travel through the doors at the end of the image into the main visitor event space. Employees will travel through another path into the heart and soul of the workplace, dubbed the Pulse, to start their day. Next slide, please. The Pulse is a robust amenity zone located in the middle of the floor stack and is a hub of activity for the headquarters. The Pulse contains a variety of work and social spaces meant to attract and create community. It has an enhanced pantry with fresh and healthy food and beverage options, a tech lounge for IT training and support, a wide variety of individual and group seating options, and of course, you have to have a ping pong area. Open stairs connecting all five floors converge in this area, creating a sense of vertical community. The Pulse also connects to the visitor's event space, which I mentioned earlier, and a grand 3,200 square foot landscaped and furnished terrace open to all to use. One of the most popular areas in the Pulse is what we call the sunken living room. Overlooking the terrace, it has a cozy indoor-outdoor feel. With the cushy sofa running throughout the, the space, it's a great area to hang out for one or two, or with a tiered seating around it, it can be used for larger team meetings and presentations. Again, it's all about choice. The event space, next slide please. The event space was developed as a comfortable greeting and meeting environment. A loungy pre-function area serves a variety of conference and huddle rooms, a multifunction training room, and is anchored by a boardroom, which is enclosed with a glass movable wall system. With the walls retracted and pole-mounted monitors pivoted outward, the, the boardroom opens to the lounge, creating a large space for gatherings and presentations. All the furniture, including the boardroom table itself, is mobile and can be stored in an adjacent storage area, providing total flexibility. This space really, really has, has um, can, can do basically anything whenever you need it. Again, about choice. And then a tour of the office wouldn't be complete without showing where the work is actually being done. Um, in the center of each work floor is an area called the commons. These amenity-rich zones, which are a scaled-down version of the, the, the pulse I spoke of earlier, connect the Eisner community, community vertically with interconnecting stairs and horizontally to the neighborhoods. There are four distinct workplace neighborhoods on each floor, this image being one of them. And I'm breaking down the scale of the workplace and providing a sense of individuality and locality for ISER's employees. The neighborhoods address the wellness pillar of the design brief. All workspaces are provided with natural daylight and views. All worktops throughout the entire campus are height adjustable. Common support spaces are dispersed around the floor to promote activity and movement throughout the day. Get up and move, get your blood going. And biophilic design elements such as organic patterning, textures and colors, as well as a really robust live plant program bring nature to the users throughout the headquarters. So now that we have a sense of what Eisenhower headquarters is, let's get going sharing how we got there during COVID. Take Thank it over. Good job, Mike. Thank you very much. Um, so the first question today uh, really relates to project vision and goals. Rob, from the client's perspective, can you describe the project's vision, goals, and success metrics? So there was one metric that was set out by our uh, CEO, and that was this. At the end, if it looks like an accounting firm, we will have failed. And so that was, uh, that was my marching orders. Uh, and from there, we... We started to develop a vision, um, a workplace strategy project back in 2017. Uh, we, uh, we, we, we got our staff uh, involved from the beginning, which was really important. And as I look back at the output of that strategic visioning, um, it's really pretty remarkable. Uh, this is in 2017. So uh, a couple of the project goals were to create a workplace that's engineered for value and flexible to respond to global disruption, to create a strategic workplace that facilitates future work styles. Um, and uh, one of the directions for change was technology to support various ways of working at home and in the office. And so uh, that was 2017. You know, and I think what's really important to note is that the pandemic um, accelerated the things that we were already visioning rather than changing them. Excellent. Thank you. 
Mark, uh, to elaborate, can you explain um, few other design drivers coming out of FCA's vision work, workplace analysis, and overall programming? Yeah, it really was about, um, you know, back to the driver we talked about earlier on change and choice um, and varieties. So the master program is, is accommodating 850 staff, but in 590 total reservable seats. Um, and 124 of those are in enclosed spaces. So we, we had a lot of variety of where you could work and encouraging people to work from wherever, um, be it the office, or being working at a client's office or working from home, which again goes back to our, our um, success with COVID. Um, the reservation system really was a key to all of this. Um, being able to, to go onto your mobile app, choose your space that you want to work for the day, have everything there ready for you when you get there, and have a place to store your stuff um, when you are not in the, in, in the office. Um, they use a, a project called Agile Quest Forum, which is a great reservation system. And then, and then just making this a place where people want to go. People don't have to come to the office. Um, you know, pre-COVID, that was the goal. And so making this someplace they want to come. Um, so really filling it with, with beautiful amenities, making it a space that was healthful, um, active, and, and enjoyable to, to hang out with your coworkers. And, and those were really our driving principles for, for the design side. Thank you. So Rob, back to you. Um, can you talk a little, what were the business and cultural decisions when Eisner Amper considered the introduction of unassigned seating, reservations, and actually kind of leveraging ratios? Well, uh, initially there was a lot of pushback from, uh, uh, from, from I'd say at the, the partner level, uh, folks that uh, you're dealing with people who have worked a certain way for a long time. There was an element of, I earned it, I'm a partner, I should have an office, I should have my own office, put my pictures on the wall, my diploma on the wall. Uh, you know, and, and when we started to talk to our staff, we were actually initially really, really pleasantly surprised to hear that there was actually a pretty um, open feeling towards the non-dedicated environment, non-dedicated workstation environment. Um, it was interesting. I, you know, I, I'll always remember the two things that were pointed out to us. They said uh, we'd be open to it um, if uh, it's clean. Right. And so uh, got to be clean when I show up the next day. If it's other than where I sat yesterday, it's got to be clean. And the other is consistency of experience. And so from a technology standpoint, I uh, have to make sure that if I'm going to move around from space to space, it's the same. It's the same experience uh, everywhere we go. So um, what we did was uh, we were very fortunate timing wise. We had a similar project going on out in San Francisco. We had an opportunity to really pilot uh, a lot of this. Uh, about a year earlier in a 12,000 square foot space, including the cultural cultural elements and change elements you're talking about, Tony. Uh, that went really well. I think getting staff involved in the process and listening to them was really important. Uh, I did things like I gave up my office and moved out into a workstation, open workstation in our old space. Um, uh, we focused on the pillars uh, and what people were gaining rather than what they were giving up. Uh, and, uh, and then we held, and, and Mark uh, helped us uh, uh, with these, what we call day in the life sessions, uh, where we actually, rather than just de describing it and showing pictures, we actually created an experiential presentation around how people were gonna use the space. Uh, and it was really, really well received, built around those four pillars that Mark mentioned. Excellent, thank you, Rob, thank you. So let's shift gears and now kind of speak a little to the building and the lease. So the next question really relates to um, building and lease. Can the panel please speak to the challenges and opportunities you encountered while working with the landlord? So I can take that initially. Um, the challenges were the lease was the landlord work portion of the lease had about 30 plus items on it, whether it's the landlord work, strictly landlord work, which you're used to seeing when you go into a new construction. Then there was a section for pre-possession work, which they owed us before we sort of took possession. Then some categories were post-possession and each one of these 30 or so items tied back to the lease to specific dates. So I just remember the day that I had to tell Jay that the lease wasn't a regular lease and um, our schedule was going to have to be sort of um, staggered 
to one point with the slab openings and the slab closings of, so Jay is saying, so what are you saying? We're not, you're giving me the space, but I can't start this one particular stair yet. And um, yeah, so we survived that, but it was, it that was the biggest challenge. I think they had lot line windows and they had a little delay getting the, um, the permitting for that. There were bathroom work, the ground floor lobby turnover, you know, part of the pre-possession was turning over this, the space itself on the inside, then the post-possession was doing the actual storefront. So that was definitely different um, than we were expecting, but uh, in the COVID world, it just, it made it a little bit harder to say the least because every delay would be exaggerated down the line because of the specifics that we were still waiting to get something handed over. But all in all, it, 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 it panned out okay. I mean, the ground floor and the, the, the terrace, I think were the two items that we were the most concerned about. But at the end of the day, it all fit in. Thanks sure. to Jay, I would say. Yes. Jay, you're on mute. For us, if, if, you, if you reference the dates that Lauren was referring to that were lease driven, it really turned into a phased turnover from the landlord, right? So the landlord had work to do to prepare the space in order for Rob and his team to take it over as the client. And then we wanted to make sure that our design from our team's perspective was going to marry to those conditions and be able to build a successful project. So it required that in some aspects, based on the lease driven, driven dates, we had to be a bit nimble about us starting what it meant to actually start, uh, what work we could get done as far as a pre-possession um, turnover as it took place. And then ultimately when we actually got to a full 100% workforce on site and allowed us to build per the schedule. Okay. And, and Jay and Lauren, can, can you elaborate kind of from a coordination standpoint, there was also a lot of landlord work. We had, yeah. uh, you know, uh, core restrooms being done, like you said, window replacement, uh, dem yeah. demolition, et cetera. There was what, about four, three to four other GCs, Jay, that you were trying to coordinate? Correct. Yeah. So in a, in a normal case, Tony, you know, we, we walk into a, a building. In some cases, uh, the landlord's already performed the demolition and we're walking into a clean canvas, so to speak, and we start construction from scratch. Um, here we actually latched on to a number of existing elements that we went ahead and modified and made them look new. We'll talk about some of those in, uh, later on in the presentation, like the staircase. But for the most part, the challenging thing from a logistical standpoint, in particular as it related to COVID, is that it wasn't just JT Megan on site performing their activities and having control over their own workforce. It was a number of other general contractors still involved in some of these post-handover conditions that the landlord had to meet that allowed us to have to kind of mix our workforce and traffic with others on site. And the compliance to COVID became that much more important and crucial to the success of the project. Excellent. Yeah, Thank sure. you. Thank you, Jay. Thanks, Lauren. So let's shift to the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, this, this question is for everyone. Please discuss the pandemic's impact on the project from each of your perspectives. Whoever, anybody can jump, take it away. Well, I'll start because well, we, we made a lot of assumptions. Um, you know, this is a space that wasn't handed over until the day we started construction. So it had never been demoed. There were a lot of hidden conditions. And you know, as every architect does, it's like, oh, we'll take care of that in CA. Um, so they did all the demo and all those conditions were exposed and we weren't able to go on site. So it was, there, there was a lot of really great handholding from JTM to, to get us through these, un, you know, and, and to figure out how to, how to address these unknown conditions when they came up. Right. Mark, it's a good point. I mean, look, for us, uh, much like the rest of the world, our process, Tony, uh, became less traditional and had to go virtual, right? So the reality is that we did get, uh, we suffered a shutdown based on the city shutting down for construction. Um, fortunately for us, this project was deemed an essential construction project based on the business type that Eisner Amper offers as an accounting firm. So we were back to work sooner than most, uh, most projects within the city, but the kudos to this team, and I've said it before to all of you individually, is that, you know, the success here was really the fact that we were able to remain as productive as we were during the COVID shutdown virtually with regard to logistics, uh, coordination, administration, and how we made our way through some of the points that still needed to be resolved on the project while we weren't physically there, right? So, um, 
you know, Mark made a good point. Most of the things that, w- that took place on site from a uh, discovery standpoint, as far as the existing conditions go, those happened either through a Zoom call with an iPad or some type of a FaceTime call so that we could point out some of the existing conditions that we were up against. But it was important. We still had to do that level of analysis so that we could make sure the existing conditions were marrying with the new design. And we had the ultimate outcome that we were looking for, which is a high quality project. Yeah. And we, I went back through my notes before today's uh, presentation. We did not miss one uh, project meeting, not one. Um, and we had separate meetings, uh, you know, alongside the weekly project meeting. Now, personally, and you, the team knows me, I'm a purist. If you don't show up at my job site, I don't really even want to talk to you. So for me, it was a big deal to do Zoom. And, and everyone joined. I mean, for the most part, even, you know, most people had their cameras on and I never thought that that would happen. And it made it a little bit easier because, you know, I, for, for me, it, this, I felt like we were the guinea pigs. I know Jay had other jobs going on, um, but I did yep. not. So I'm thinking, how do we keep this job going? How do we keep the motivation going? Um, how do we find out where the real problems are without being there, you know, laying drawings out on a table and figuring it all out? But to JT Megan's credit, you know, they still had a team on. We were home on Zoom. They still had a team out there for a good three weeks later, sort of risking their lives with tons of masks. And, and, you know, this was early on. This was March. So people didn't, I don't think anyone realized how long this would go or what the ramifications were, but they took it very seriously. Um, you know, they, they had enough PPE, the temperature checks happened. And I think you know, the big impact along with how are we going to get this job done was, is this really that serious? How are we going to all stay healthy? That That's how I felt. And, you know, I know that's a good the, point. The normal, you know, oh, can, you know, Matt, can you meet the guy, let the guy in? You know, I felt personally like we were really asking a huge favor at the time. Uh, rather yeah. than this young guy going home to his wife and kids, he, he was sticking it out. So it was Lucas, so it was Jay. So that, I think we were all very sensitive to that, but nevertheless, um, things, things kept moving. I, I, I really don't even think we could say something went wrong because we weren't there. It might've taken a few days extra. Um, yep. But even some of the walkthroughs, Rob, I met you on a Sunday. We had a very small group. You could still park your car in front of the building, which you can't do that anymore. Um, but I think, we collectively, luckily, we had already formed a bond with the project team. So it made it a lot easier for me to say, yeah, Rob, I'm not that comfortable taking the train in. And, and we made it work. Right. I think the mm-hmm. entire team. And, a lot of and flexibility really, across the group. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we, as a group, we had to remain nimble. I mean, that was the idea behind it. Everybody was nimble. Everybody presented themselves in a way that they were up for the challenge. You know, it was taxing, taxing on the field team. Um, it were, they were long days. Uh, stressful days in the fact that you couldn't just say, hey, walk in the front door and come up to the job site and do whatever uh, task you have to perform. You know, every protocol from a logistics standpoint had to be followed to a T to ensure that we were running a safe project and that we were doing whatever we could to follow the the COVID protocols set forth by the the New York City Department of Buildings, making sure we're social distancing. And And it did put a strain on the team to some degree mentally, because everybody had to be on their A game the entire day that they were on site to be sure that each of those protocols were being followed and we were running a safe job site. Sure. So, so Jay and Lauren, you know, within that category, um, we, we had some very specific issues. You know, we had some, some permitting issues with respect to DOB. I know we had some significant issues with um, structural steel trades, just manpower in general. Could you expand on yep. that? Sure. So, um, you know, one of the things... Uh, that was a challenge. There are challenges on every project, but this one had unique challenges along with, you know, what was happening in the city from a shutdown perspective. But structural steel, the coordination of structural steel and the implementation of structural steel is something that usually happens off hours in a building. It requires an overtime permit, right? Well, the Department of Buildings was, first of all, hesitant to reopen projects based on what was going on in the city with COVID. We were, again, fortunate enough to have us deemed as an essential construction project, so we opened early, but they were very resistant to go ahead and allow for long days to take place, for after-hours permits to be issued, which was a stipulation by the building that we had to do structural steel work after hours. So here we are in a conundrum. We want to get the work done. We want to move things forward. Unfortunately, we weren't able to actually get permits issued by the 
the Department of Buildings that allowed us to work those overtime shifts because they were hesitant to do it. They didn't want people in the city uh, at a particular time of night or later than a particular hour because they realized that people were at home. They were not going to work. They didn't want to cause disturbances. They didn't want to get complaints. I completely understand that. What it did for us is it made what would have been a full eight-hour overtime shift be diminished into a few hours a night based on the permit stipulations that were given to us. And staggering for extras for overtime. Staggering. Yes. Until the building. A lot of downtime. Until the building did allow us to start working more hours during the day, which was a, a Correct. special request. So they did allow and again, us to, to, to the credit of the building, they, they too were nimble. They recognized the fact that they didn't have a whole lot of tenants in the building. They allowed us to go ahead and expand our work hours so that we weren't truly starting an overtime shift at 6 p.m. They allowed us to peel those hours back and start at a 3 p.m. slot so that we could actually get a full shift of iron workers in there to go ahead and install steel from let's call it 3 p.m. to 9 p.m. as opposed to having a permit until two in the morning, which was a no-go. They weren't letting us do that. Right. Okay. And they did also allow us to use the fire stairs, which normally, you know, some buildings it's just zero tolerance with that. And we had our private elevators to use. So getting manpower up and down, that was also, that was a plus that they worked with us yep. on. And, 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 and they did our, their best to try to assist with the, you know, the COVID restrictions that we had, the temperature checks, again, another huge um, cost. Um, I think things are a little bit different now, but in the beginning, when this was all going down, we had to have our own temperature person. Yep. Uh, and so they were hired and they sat in the loading dock. I think other buildings now have sort of grouped it together. So, uh, but back then that was a big hit for the client. So, so Jay and Warren, if you shift a minute for kind of material and supply chain concerns, could, can you expand yep. that a little? Sure. Um, you know, look, j just as, uh, us as professionals weren't in our workplace and uh, people had to work from home. Um, you know, if you weren't deemed an essential business during the shutdown, uh, you weren't open and you weren't fabricating things like millwork, like metal goods, lighting, things that we needed to go ahead and make sure we're still in production to allow us to have the materials we needed to build the project, right? We need two things to build every project. We need a workforce and we need the materials. Well, if we don't have the materials, we can't build the project, right? So in that case, um, we did have supply chain issues in the fact that even when certain manufacturing shops did get back to capacity, they were at a diminished capacity and whatever lead times we may have faced for production of materials, in some cases they would go ahead and, and double. Um, we, were, we were missing dates with regard to commitments from vendors based on deliveries and expected deliveries of materials. And what we had to do is basically on a weekly basis, we had to revise our schedule to accommodate those types of delays, rework certain adjustments and certain tasks to happen, maybe not so much in sequence as to what we're used to, in order for us to keep enough momentum on the project, keep things moving so that we had some semblance of a schedule that we were maintaining for Rob and his team at Eisner Amper. Yep. Excellent. Thank yeah, you. And usually, I mean, the, the, a lot of the furniture was delivered while we were still doing sheetrock. I mean, things, That's things correct. came in, they came in yeah. and we just had to deal with it. And, and some of the furniture, yep. we had three furniture dealings and some of the plants had shut down they were able to pick up the speed when they reopened. Um, Correct. So there, was, there was pretty, you know, it could have been worse delays, but we survived the, uh, when they reopened, they were relatively quick to deliver. So Jay, right. we're still missing a uh, warming drawer. I think that's about it. Don't talk about that on here, Mark. <laughs> I, I know both Jay and Lauren started to talk about the, the logistics of actually uh, the job site safety. So just a couple mm -hmm. of quick uh, questions. You know, sure. I know that the, the DOB required a COVID plan. There were multiple inspections. We were very lucky to only have two positive cases of, of construction workers with COVID. Can you speak a little to those, how you managed through that? Sure. So, um, you know, JT Megan as a company had to uh, put their best foot forward and develop their own COVID protocols. Uh, some of those requirements exceeded and were above and beyond the CDC guidelines, uh, as well as what the New York City Department of Buildings was mandating. Uh, a big thing, just to talk through a couple of items, the temperature testing was a big deal, right? Uh, when any of the workers uh, would make their way into the building, we had to set up a station by which we could take their temperature because early on, that was a big indicator as to whether or not you were symptomatic or not symptomatic. Uh, in addition to that, um, the DOB mandated that we had proper number of facilities for hand washing, right, to make sure that we had a, uh, a clean site. Um, so in this case, we actually went ahead and leveraged the uh, base building bathrooms, and we, would pro we probably in this case 
opened more of the base building bathrooms than we would normally and protected those bathrooms so that we could use them on a daily basis and keep everyone safe from a hand-washing perspective. Uh, the biggest challenge that we had on site is really the social distancing, right? Because in some aspects, you have people that need to work as a team. Um, if you're hanging a piece of sheetrock on a ceiling, it's not a task that one person can do alone. There's usually two people on that board and then having to screw it in place. So um, there were certain guidelines set that allowed people to work in close proximity as teams. Uh, but the bigger challenge is when you started to have things like lunch breaks and coffee breaks to be sure that people weren't congregating together and being social, we had to make sure that we maintained social distancing uh, at those times of the day. And we actually had to assign a separate superintendent to basically walk around and police those types of activities so that we were making sure that we stayed in compliance. The last thing we wanted to do, Tony, was create some type of an infraction that would promote the idea of the job being shut down because the idea behind it was for us to keep ourselves open and running and build the job as quickly as possible. Yeah, and, and hats off to JT Megan, because I know that in the beginning, you know, getting hundreds of tradesmen to be wearing masks properly, face shields, it's, it's a lot of uh, observation and supervision. Yeah, I think they kept a lot of that to themselves, Tony, but it was, I'm sure it was a huge, bigger struggle. It was a yeah. Difficult task, a, a lot of mental strain. Uh, you know, a number of uh, have a number of day, times having to repeat yourself over and over to sometimes different people, but m a lot of the times the same people, and just uh, you yeah. know, recurring theme of face masks, social distancing, following the proper protocols. We all, we all took turns as being the mask police. I think I got that's, my frustrations right. out just by walking around. And also, Jay, just real quick, the DOB visits were re a serious thing. The amount of paperwork, yeah. I remember Lucas showing me stacks, they didn't want to see a digital uh, yep. report of who's been uh, temperature checked. They wanted to see binders and binders. You know, everybody has a checklist that they have to fill in before they enter the job site that, uh, you know, it's a similar checklist that probably all of you are familiar with. Uh, to uh, note whether you're feeling symptomatic or not, if you had a temperature, uh, signing off, making sure you uh, note a person that's an emergency contact, all that paperwork had to be uh, compiled on a daily basis. We had binders and binders of COVID paperwork that we had to deal with on a, on a daily and weekly basis that, again, logistically, in a normal aspect, would slow us down. Uh, but we assigned the proper personnel to handle that specific responsibility and kept things moving as efficiently as we could. Yep. Great, great. Yep. So, so shifting um, topics for a second. So, so the project had, you know, in addition to your traditional um, subcontractors and trades, based on the design, had many specialty trades. Can you speak how you manage those vendors? Any challenges you had and how you uh, overcome them? Sure. I mean, look, the philosophy on, on my end, Tony, is whether it's a, uh, a vendor that's hired directly by Eisner Amper or somebody that's promoted through the design field, you know, we have to treat them as though we're our own vendor, right? Because they need to understand the expectations when it comes to quality of the project, um, the cost of the project and the schedule. And if, uh, if, I'm, I take the approach, and you guys know this about me, if one entity on the project fails, we all fail. So I have to ensure that everybody that signed up for the project understands the rules, understands what we're after as far as our schedule compliance goes, and, uh, and have to treat them as though they're my own vendor. Uh, in this case, um, there was a lot of coordination, you know, uh, certain things like building systems. We talked a bit about the DAS antenna system throughout the space. Um, you know, we needed to be sure that uh, the DAS vendor, who was essentially a building vendor at that point, um, didn't just come into the project and run cabling roughshod wherever they wanted to. We had to make sure that it was done in a conscientious manner so that ultimately that type of infrastructure and how it was routed through the ceilings worked and, again, meshed with the idea of what was going to ultimately be the architectural design that the FCA team put together, right? So um, it's a matter of having the proper walkthroughs. Uh, having the proper conversations, albeit virtually or on site with Lauren's help, we went ahead and managed that particular vendor and ultimately it was successful in the fact that we got the antennas located where we wanted them to. We hit as much of the cable as we wanted to and particularly in this open ceiling design that you guys presented that was of paramount importance. Um, I think that portion of the uh, of the coordination with uh, with the DAS vendor was very successful. Yeah. Lauren, would you like to add anything? I know you were instrumental in the um, environmental graphics, furniture, canteen, <laughs> food service. The graphics, as beautifully as they came out, were very difficult to coordinate and probably only because we were staggering and phasing things that weren't supposed to be initially. Um, every time Jay had a level five wall set up, invariably something happened the next night, a mover came in and a normal ding that we had to re repaint the entire wall. So right. we, get, we had paint fatigue 
but they there was a um, airspace was their consultant for pretty much all the the branding and and signage and they had applied image which was a, a vinyl company that did all these beautiful graphics and color tied in each individual floor to their neighborhood you had coil that did the uh, the, the other branding and signage, and you had EXP that did the digital component in the monitors like you saw in that earlier picture. And again, the three furniture uh, dealers plus their many manufacturers, not to mention Space Store, right? They did the lockers. So there was like four furniture people to coordinate, but you know, it, it all worked. We were a little cranky, but it worked. <laughs> Tony, I will say the, the one thing that's unique about this project is really the terrace, and that's the backdrop that Rob Levine has uh, behind him. Um, you know, not a lot of spaces uh, have a dedicated, uh, sorry, a lot, not a lot of office space has dedicated outdoor space just for them, right? And in this case, uh, through VVA's help uh, with, with uh, Eisner Amper, they worked a lease deal here where they had dedicated outdoor space. So the challenge there, of course, and it, it may not be fully completed in the sense that there will be some seasonal planting that takes place after all this damn snow is gone, I'm sure. But nonetheless, we uh, completed the project. It really brings a certain level of the outdoors inward um, as far as how the space relates both interior to the exterior. It's a fantastic space to be on. Um, you kind of lose sight of the fact that you're in New York City when you're sitting on that terrace. And uh, it was also a, just a great design element that was uh, an, an unusual feature that I don't see on every project which is really uh, great to be a part of. Sure. Thank you, guys. So, so let's shift to two you know, critical topics. Let, let's talk about the impact of cost and schedule. And um, I mean, we've got an accounting firm, so we wanted to make sure that uh, we, we took care of the costing. And of course, we had COVID, so we managed through the schedule. So, uh, you know, Jay Warren and, and Rob and Mark, um, you know, we had how, how did you how did you kind of manage through these unprecedented times? Well, we had it set up. Uh, Will is our QS, and Will worked with uh, Dave McGee, who is the Eisner Amper uh, accounting person that helped us with the cost report. So there was some shifting of the the cash flow. I think when we had slowed down due to COVID and extended out, um, there was some change orders because of COVID that you know just be the temperatures and whatever that we had to take care of. And then there was, you know, the stickier issues were repeatedly getting from consultants their extension of schedule fees, um, which, you know, it's a sticky subject, but through no fault of their own, the job that was supposed to end in June now is ending in October. And um, I just remember when we were started to build the CA, I kept sending it back to our, our accounting person and he said to me, well, we're in, we're in CA. I'm like, but nobody's there doing CA. He said, well, but we're still in CA. So somebody's walking around, somebody's Zooming or photographing and, but eventually you run out of CA. So those were sticky issues, but I felt that we had already formed such a good relationship with Rob's team that we were able to capture everything on our, our cost report that meshed with their cost reports. And to this day, we still, you know, touch base with Dave to make sure that, you know, was there anything extra during the move? Did you have any technology issues that maybe we didn't know about and so on? And, and there may be some day two work, but I feel the document was set up perfectly going into it so that we were able to capture a lot of these things. Yeah, um, yeah Lauren, I, I think you, you, go, go ahead, ahead Rob, Jay. sorry. I thought, you know, Lauren, the idea behind it is, and, and Tony, for you, cost management in this case really came down to proper forecasting, right? We knew we were going to have something to deal with when it came to COVID and logistics. And the fact that we were kind of in step with communication and very open about what it meant to the project, it was really VVA's proper, you know, forecasting of what was going to happen from a cost perspective that allowed all of us to kind of sleep at night and understand that, you know, we were going to have some things to deal with, but ultimately uh, made the job successful from a financial standpoint. Yeah. And, and, and uh, credit to everyone, because it can't be easy doing cost, uh, cost forecasting and, and management with an accounting firm. It's, it's kind of what we do. So. Um, <laughs> you said so, it, Rob, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'll tell you, one of the things that was really interesting here is uh, due to the uh, due to the pandemic, um, you know, I actually probably visited the site. Uh, I live on Long Island. I probably visited the site when we were building out San Francisco more frequently 
than I did um, th this office, which was across the street from our previous office. Yeah. So that was uh, that was a little bit unusual. Um, I, I, you know, just I'll, I'm going to throw a couple of other numbers. This is less about the construction uh, and more about gets a little bit back to the vision for a second. And so, um, you know, we we had set out to cut out about 24 percent of our uh, footprint. Uh, through this design and through the reservation system. Uh, recently, there was a survey of um, about 50 you know, larger accounting firms. 60% of them are now, uh, you know, with the pandemic, obviously, experience and, and the knowledge, uh, now planning to decrease their square footage by 1% to 10%, 60% of them, 30% by 10 to 20% and 10% by 20 to 30%. We had set out to cut out 24% before the pandemic. And actually, as a result, we were able to close down another office. So we actually cut out about 32%. Um, and we have capacity probably to add another 100 people. Um, so, you know, that, that before you even add another 100 people, you know, we, we think that translates to about $4.5 million of rent and occupancy costs a year. Terrific. That great, great statistics. So I, I, Rob, I want to just get your view quickly because I'm being mindful of time on um, how the management team at EA kind of developed a return to office strategy because you've been working ever since the pandemic, then leaving us time for some uh, photographs and Q&A. Sure, so the RTO, uh, you know, we have a, an RTO task force uh, that I'm involved with uh, and, and it's across all of our offices, but New York does have one, this project has one thing that is different, which is the reservation system I'll talk to in a minute. Um, and so really the RTO was, the guidelines were developed first and foremost, you know, we had to make sure that we're following all the local regulations uh, of the local jurisdictions um, and really following science uh, around uh, social distancing, uh, things like that. Um, but really, you know, at, at, the, at, at the end of it, it was really about safety uh, and keeping in mind that we have, we really had three sort of groups of people. We had uh, the, what we consider our essential colleagues, the folks that needed to be in the office to do their work, whether that was opening and scanning mail or office operations, tax processing, IT. And, and so we wanted to make sure that we were going to protect those folks that had to come to the office to do their jobs. Uh, then there was a group of people who uh, they could technically work from home but very challenging to work from home for a, a variety of, of reasons. You know, and then the great majority uh, were working great from home, right? And so we really built our guidelines uh, around RTO, around that, encouraging people to work from home to protect those other groups. And the one thing about the New York City, I'll say, is um, when, we, when we turned on the reservation system, it opened up the office, even though we're at 25% capacity on those 590 workstations, we're able to open up the office to all 850 people to reserve whenever they want. So great leverage of the office space uh, based on the original design. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, and and Rob, the, the office has been open since February 1. Um, can you just share some feedback on how your employees are enjoying it? So the office actually opened up in mid-November. We went to the reservation system on February 1. Uh, I have heard, so it's limit. It's limited number of people. You know, we're probably in the 5%-ish, 10%-ish range. I have heard only glowing rave reviews uh, of the space and so different than what people were, uh, you know, uh, expecting uh, for an accounting firm, which is, goes back to that original statement. Um, I, you know, one of my favorite quotes is from uh, a staff person that I spoke to one day when I was there uh, and I asked that and he said, oh, this is great. And I said, you know, elaborate. What, you know, what are, what are you feeling? And he said, I can't believe this is where I work now. Uh, he said, it feels like a cross between a downtown media company and a Silicon Valley tech company. Excellent. Thank you. That's a win. That's a win. I felt the same way. I think I told you on a weekend. I feel like this is one of the media companies I've been doing, not, not an accounting company, no offense, and you laughed. But what did somebody say to you about- You brought, you brought cool to Third Avenue. You brought cool to Third Avenue. That's right. So, Rob, Rob we, we don't have images, uh, for, the, for people on the Zoom, we don't have images of the ground floor welcome center uh, due to construction outside on the building skin, but could you speak a little about that amenity? 
Sure. You know, and, and I think there's probably a, a few amenities that really stand out. I know Jay mentioned the terrace that I'm that I'm on here, which is which is which is awesome. Uh, the uh, the ground floor. And so the ground those were two things that we were looking for when we were doing our search for space. We wanted the Eisner Amper experience to begin right off the street. We wanted our uh, whether it's uh, uh, recruits, whether it's potential clients, existing clients. Uh, our people. We wanted that experience right off of the street. And so uh, th this was a particular opportunity. There was some retail space. Um, and so people can, it will, will come, they can enter right into our space, really well branded. Uh, there's a beautiful wall on the side with a saying around innovation, you know, service at, uh, you know, uh, and, and so uh, come in, they're going to be greeted there by a, a hospitality person, begin that experience. It's really a, uh, almost a business lounge is the way we, we mm -hmm. looked at it. Uh, and so uh, we have clients, our prospects, people who come in and they have a half hour between meetings, they can come in. There's a, there's a huddle room, there's a, there's a phone room, there's a lounge. Um, and so they can actually uh, do some work uh, if they have some extra time to spare. And then when the meeting's ready, they come up into that seventh floor that you showed, Tony, where you come off the elevator with the, mm -hmm. uh, the digital branding and that, you know, that, that, that really amazing environment. Um, and, and that's also where they would come into, if there was an event, they would come into this really, really flexible uh, event space that has uh, a boardroom with retractable walls that opens up into a sort of a, almost like a cocktail lounge outside of a, an event center and training facility that's next to that uh, cafe, which is next to the terrace. And so the flexibility of the kinds of events that we'll be able to run uh, just great, great branding, uh, internal branding, external branding, talent acquisition, terrific stuff. Great. I, I think you're probably uh, one so. of, you know, very unique to have that, that kind of retail street level entrance in the city. So, so I think from a timing standpoint, we ought to shift to some of the uh, completed images and we've got some process images that Jay and Mark will take you through. Liz, if you can go ahead and share. Oh yeah. So we'll go through, we'll go through these relatively quickly. Um, so one of the things that we we uh, we talked about earlier is we didn't we didn't have a chance to do a lot of investigation prior to construction starting. So there are some existing conditions and assumptions. Um, one of uh, are, are we sharing yet? No. One of the one of the things that draw drew us to this to this individual space was the um, was the atrium. There's an existing three story. Uh, uh, communicating stair from the seventh to the, to the ninth floor um, that allowed us to build a sense of vertical community. Um, the, the landlord had all the paperwork for it. We thought they, they gave it, you know, that was permitted and that was approved. And after we got digging, the landlord couldn't find any of that. And we had to go back and Lauren and, and Jay did a lot of work trying, trying to get this existing condition permitted so we could, we could actually reuse it. Yeah, we had to get a determination. Yeah, we also had the um, had the shop drawings of how the stair was built, and of course, after Jay stripped it all down, it wasn't built that way. Um, so, <laughs> so here we go. You can go to the next slide. Um, so there was this amazing three-story space, and so. You know, JTM had to strip it down. We had to look at it. We had to try to figure out mostly most of this remotely because we weren't going on in space. How to redesign this and how to get it permitted. So Jay, why don't you? Yeah, this before and after. But Jay, why don't you kind of tell us some of the stories? So cool. Yeah. So you know, one of the things that's that's harder for us to do in this business from a construction management standpoint is to take something that's an existing element, right? Try to deface it to some degree and then put it all back together and make it look like it's brand new. And I think that this uh, this photo that you see here, the before and after, really epitomizes is that idea. You know, we had the skeletal structure of the stair in place. We went ahead and took all the finishes off the stair itself and then essentially remade it with uh, the, the, the unique design that FCA put together with metal and glass components and really made this uh, a living and breathing atrium, as, you, as Mark called it, uh, for Eisner Amper to utilize. I'm going to the next slide. Um, here's just an example of before, during, and after. Um, so the, yeah. the before was, we, we found out the, um, the rise and run of the stair was just a hairline within code. Uh, the, the railings, the pickets and the rails weren't, weren't correct. Um, nothing about the original stair actually met code. The one in the, right. the, the center is a strip down, and then this is how JTM ended up getting it back to us. Yeah, and the, and the finishes here, again, are unique. This is not your average uh, accounting firm, right? We've got uh, grinded concrete floors. We've got, in this case, um, 
you know, wood treads that are um, that are reclaimed wood treads. We've got black and metal steel and glass as handrails. So um, this is definitely a, uh, a a progressive space when it comes to the design and the elements and the finishes that were put into it. You can go to the next slide, which shows the the, the final product, which we're very very proud of. Um, and this, when I, when I speak of, of the commons and the, and the central amenity space on every floor, this is an example of what that space is. Um, yeah. let's, let's move on to the next. So this, this is between seven and nine, but we also had to create a stair, a connection between nine and 10 and six and seven. So a, another example of, of needing to do a lot of this um, on the fly, because of the, the getting the determination on the atrium stair, it got involved in, okay, how do these new stairs, how are they located and how are they permittable? So this, both the upper and the lower communicating stair have a horizontal sliding fire curtain to, to separate those floors, which again, involved a lot of, a lot of coordination offsite and with Jay's team. Yeah, so from a, from a fire code perspective, we had to go ahead and, and put in that horizontal sliding shutter that allowed us to compartmentalize the space and separate it in a way that um, allowed for us to be in compliance as per building code. Um, again, this is actually a new staircase, so we started from scratch in the sense that we had to dig up the existing structural drawings, understand what was happening within the structure of the building, reframe or frame in this opening with new structural steel, and then ultimately implement this stair uh, that spoke to the same vocabulary from a finish standpoint as the other stair in the atrium that Mark discussed earlier. And I find it curious, this, this tree on the landing, um, I have no idea, I was there, I have no idea how they got it in the building, but here's, yeah, <laughs> there's some massive trees going on. Yeah. Uh, let's go to the next phase. And Jay, this, this this is your baby, the terrace. It was it was a yes. project. So you know, it looks like in the before picture we've got uh, you know make believe grass carpet, right, <laughs> to, to make up <laughs> what looks like a terrace. The before shot. Um, ultimately, uh, the building had a hand in in uh, pre prepping this space for us and making it into a um, a paver type scenario that were on uh, was on a raised floor pedestal. So that system did uh, exist when uh, we took over the space as a post condition. Um, uh, turnover. Um, but ultimately, uh, through the work of Eisner Design and FCA, there was a new design that was out there that became a very uh, geometric in some of its shapes and how we actually cut the pavers away and provided some planting areas. Uh, we have some teak wood um, platforms as well that act as a decking that, um, again, add another ele uh, element of design here. Um, ultimately, this acts as, and you can see some of the structure in the during photo, uh, we've got the stanchions and some of the structure that led to the benches, the seating benches that are out there um, to allow people to congregate and, uh, and actually enjoy the outdoor space. But it's a fantastic space. Again, it's a unique element that we don't see on an everyday office project, and uh, I hope that Eisner Amper gets great use out of it. And one of the reasons it was, it was you, know, you don't see a lot of this is, is getting, getting in, involved in trying to make what was historically a building um, um, setback into an occupiable space. And that, that um, means there's a lot of weight restrictions um, that go into place. So although this terrace is very active and very full and has, has a lot of activity um, planned for it, we had to be very, very specific with every pound that we were putting and where we were placing it so we didn't have to go underneath and, and upgrade the structure, which would have been immensely expensive. I was That's trying correct. to get that part. No reinforcing required, exactly. Uh, we did good. Why don't you go ahead to the next image? The hot tub. Sorry. Here's the. This is the the east end of the terrace that uh, evolved into a more circular seating structure. I think uh, through design evolution, this took on uh, a couple of different facets, from a gazebo to other other uh, design mm -hmm. elements, and ultimately ended up as uh, as what you see here. But uh, again, it's a fantastic kind of destination as you make your way out the doors of the terrace from the interior space and head eastward to the to the end of the terrace, which is actually again to Rob Levine's backdrop. He's probably sitting in that area in his photo based on the, the backdrop that you see he's right. at the extreme east end of the terrace right. very close, yeah. it's a great okay, then, very serene the, place back there and then the last slide i think is um is the the open office and this, this is the, the part that gave us all the most headaches um the, the part of the 10th floor had been already white boxed by the landlord. And so we took, that was the only part we could see that had been demoed. So that was what we took as our standard for what the rest of the space would be when it was demoed. 
Um, the photo, the before photo on the left was, okay, there's a lot of exposed seal, the fireproofing has, fall, has fallen off. There were actually some slab infills that had been done previously. So there was a metal deck instead of concrete slab. It was a, really a mess. So JTM yeah. did amazing work to try to get it. Yeah, there was, a, there was quite a bit of beam restoration that did have to take place. And we did it in a calculated um, fashion so that we weren't adding unnecessary cost to the project. In other words, we went through the job. We understood exactly what the ceiling plan was offering as far as what was going to be closed ceiling versus open ceiling. And in the areas where it really made a difference and had a high impact, we received design direction from FCA to go ahead and restructure those beams so that we had something that looked like a normal geometry when you looked up into the open ceiling areas. Ultimately, you see it during the during phase, the last photo to the right there. Um, we ended up using a K-13 spray in a, a number of locations that added uh, two things. It allowed us to cover up a number of the messes and, and pock marks that we saw on the slab. And in addition to that, uh, offered the benefits of some acoustic treatment to the slab so that the space wasn't quite so echoey. Um, but it was, a, it was a, a good collaboration on where to apply the idea of beam restoration and where it was going to be most important in the open ceiling plan, uh, as opposed to staying away from that type of treatment in areas that were going to be closed. And the last slide is basically where Jay is sitting, the, the final product. So just right. So we are we're we're up against the clock. We have about five minutes for Q and A. If there's any in the in the queue, we probably talk too much. Imagine us. <laughs> just you, Lauren. You talk too much. <laughs> so, no I'm questions kidding. here. Okay, we'll we'll leave a minute for any questions. Um, but if not, that would end our panel discussion. Aha, wait a second. Oh, thank you, Liz. How did the implementation of the Agile Quest software go? Uh, sure. Um, you know, we we implement the, the uh, implementation went smoothly. I know. You know, with the uh, with the pandemic, we had to change course a, a couple of times. Uh, we launched it February first. Um, I I used it myself. Uh, it's very it's it's working really really well, um, and uh, we we see expanding the use of uh, of that technology to the rest of our offices in the near term. Great, that's it. Great. Well, Wait, uh, one like more question. Oh, go ahead. Were design changes made considered due to COVID? That's Rob's favorite question. That really is pretty much no, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we definitely took a sort of a, a pause and, and caught our breath and said, okay, what, you know, and our people were asking that exact question. Um, and as we thought about it, uh, what we realized is that we're going to use the space differently during what we call this RTO period, return to office period, you know, while, while the pandemic and safety are still a concern. Um, and so we, we mapped out the seats to 25%, and then that's what we put on the reservation system. But we really did, uh, I mean, my, minor things around our COVID protocols, like setting up a host station to check in the badging and stuff like that. But uh, in terms of the way our people are using the space, uh, physically, we did not change it. Uh, we just are using it differently in the in the short term. We have some more questions here. Um, one was for Jay. You mentioned challenges with the feature stair. Is turnkey something you would advocate for renovation projects like this? Yeah, when it comes to stair design, uh, we do do a lot of design build as far as stairs go. This one did not take on the design build approach. Uh, we did do it in a more traditional manner, in which case we had a steel subcontractor. We had a metal and glass uh, vendor and fabricator, uh, even to the point where we had a flooring vendor that installed the wood treads on the stair itself. But um, but the approach on this one was a bit more traditional, uh, nonetheless very successful. Um, for things that are more complicated and some of the stairs that we see out there nowadays, we do, uh, we do most of our stairs as a, a, a turnkey approach. And Dennis Summers had a question here. Um, did you attempt a phased approach to collaborative areas by way of buying to roll out? For example, boardrooms, conference rooms, setting up 10 for 10 people now versus use for 20 people down the road? Probably more for Rob. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we did not. We did not. We're, we're, you know, we're currently not using collaborative areas. Um, 
and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll find the right time and the right approach to starting to phase them back in. We, we, you know, right now we're not using collaborative areas at all. An RTO question from David Reich, as part of your return to office strategy, what kind of data did your team collect, which ultimately guided what your footprint would be and how the space would be designed? So what we did was, you know, following the science of six feet of distancing, uh, we had somebody who developed uh, a te using technology, put all of our spaces and floor plans into this technology. And then we would go in and we would indicate uh, how much uh, distancing we wanted. So we didn't want six feet. We wanted 10 feet to be extra you know, uh, conservative, or maybe we wanted 12 feet. And then that would come back and tell us which workstations would meet that criteria. And then that's what we put onto the reservation system as being active workstations. Great, I think Great. that's it for the questions. Well, well thank you everybody. And, and thank you to uh, New York City Cornet for allowing us to present this project. And thank you to our panelists. Thank you. Yes, Cornette. thank you, Cornet. Thank you. Thank you all. Have a great day, Thank everyone. You. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well done. Thank you.